This is China and the World, hosted by Asia Society Switzerland. Hello, and welcome to our first episode of China and the World, a six-part series by Asia Society Switzerland, looking at the evolving role of China in different regions and countries around the world. I'm your host, Nico Lusinger. In today's episode, we are going to look at Indonesia's focus on economic development and its pragmatic approach towards China. How Malaysia's domestic politics shapes its China policy, and how the new U.S. administration might change the power dynamics in the region. Maritime Southeast Asia is of strategic importance for China to gain access to global markets for exports, as well as imports of crude oil from the Middle East. Crucial trading routes run through the South China Sea. The Malacca Strait between Indonesia and Malaysia, which connects the South China Sea to the Indian Ocean, is one of the world's most important shipping lanes. Over the past few decades, China has built up a powerful navy that is able to safeguard the country's interests, dredging artificial islands for military and other purposes, and claiming 90% of the South China Sea. Since the 80s and 90s, China's growing economy has also become ever more reliant on the countries of maritime Southeast Asia, and vice versa. China is now a crucial economic partner to virtually every nation in the region, and the U.S.-China competition has once again put the ability of the region to maintain its strategic autonomy to the test. Let's turn first to Indonesia, the largest economy in Southeast Asia and the world's fourth most populated nation. Since 2014. It has been led by President Joko Widodo, commonly known as Jokowi. How does Indonesia approach China? Here is Ben Bland, director of the Southeast Asia program at the Lowy Institute in Australia, and author of an excellent biography of Jokowi, in conversation with my colleague Richard Maud of Asia Society Australia. How does、uh, Indonesia and the government of Joko Widodo and Indonesia's foreign policy community? Regard China's rise. How do they see that balance of opportunity and risk from Jakarta? I would separate the answer out into two parts. Really, the first would be about the Indonesian president Joko Widodo, Jokowi himself, and then maybe a bit more about the foreign policy establishment in Indonesia, because I think there's quite a Well, not very different view, but a slightly different view. So, Jokowi himself,、um, we have to understand his background. I think here because so often, I think in, in Southeast Asia and, and everywhere else in the world, it's, it's easier to understand foreign policy as an extension of domestic politics. And Jokowi is a former. Furniture exporter, a former city mayor who really puts the economy first, and he sees things in very practical terms. So I think you might describe him, if you're an economist, as a mercantilist、uh, in his foreign policy. He's basically looking for the most benefits for the Indonesian economy with the fewest conditions, and that really aligns him quite strongly with the, with China in recent years. He's desperate to see the Indonesian economy growing faster, to build the nation's hard infrastructure, and it's really. Chinese companies, state-owned, private sector, and quasi-government that are providing the cash in recent years. So, something like thirty percent of the foreign direct investment in Indonesia since two thousand and fifteen has come from Chinese companies. That's really, really an important part of the picture. China is obviously Indonesia's biggest trade partner. It's a big buyer of Indonesia's commodities like coal, palm oil. 
and rubber. And Jacoby really wants to minimize the, the political friction points and maximize the investment opportunities. That's how he sees things. He does have a bottom line on sovereignty questions. And Indonesia does have this, this dispute, if you like. Uh, the Indonesians say it's not a dispute, but the Chinese disagree uh, in a small part of its exclusive economic zone, which overlaps with China's nine dash line. So he, so long as um, there's no sovereignty question, he's really pushing the economic question and cooperation. I think within the Indonesian foreign policy community, it's a bit more complicated. And there's two views, if you like, not necessarily two camps of people, but two views. And sometimes people have uh, different views at the same time, Indonesia being quite a complicated place. So I think one view is really more the internationalist view. This is where there's more of the fear, I would say, about China and a desire to deepen Indonesia's engagement with the West, with the US, with Australia, of course, with Japan, the EU, South Korea, because of a concern that, that China's growing power does represent a threat in the medium term to Indonesia's sovereignty, to Indonesia's position in the region, to uh, the ability of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, to, to operate freely without interference. Uh, but on the other hand, you have people who are more focused on maintaining Indonesia's non-aligned status, its strategic autonomy. And this, I think, goes to the memories of Western interference in Indonesia when, uh, for those who don't know, in the 1950s, the CIA was dropping bombs on Indonesia, uh, trying to split the country up. And then it helped support this, this massacre of leftists in the 1960s uh, that saw Suharto brought to power. Uh, so those with deep, bitter memories of Western interference in Indonesia. And so they're almost as wary of, of the US and to a certain extent Australia and others as they are of China. And they want to keep a kind of equidistance. So stay away from all parties. They're wary of doing more with the West as well, because they fear China may ask uh, for an equal say in in military activities and the like. Um, so I think slightly different approach from Jokowi to the foreign establishment, but overall a similar kind of desire to balance out the opportunities and the threats that we see across the region. Do you see Indonesia as having a particular toolkit with which it tries to respond to the particular challenge of China? I'm not sure Indonesia has a strategy as such. I mean, this is partly a Jokowi issue that he's very much a tactical day-to-day -day president. He's not particularly interested in strategic issues in international relations. Um, so that's partly the, the problem. But I think more generally, Indonesia has so many domestic challenges economically, and even in terms of security you know, for the Indonesian military, the Indonesian police, they really worry much more about separatism in, in Papua and Indonesia than they do about the threat from, from China. So I think that really frames how Indonesia engages. Um, there's probably really only a few countries, I'd argue, in Southeast Asia who have a strategy for managing China. I'd that's probably Vietnam, uh, which obviously has a long and painful experience with, with China and, and war with the West and, and playing off big, great powers against each other, and probably Singapore as well. I think for the rest of the region, it's really much more a battle to deal with these deep domestic, political, economic and social challenges. But more broadly, Indonesia does have experience of managing great power conflicts. I mean, Indonesia has this independent and active principle in its foreign policy uh, that really grew out of Indonesian independence in 1945 and the desire to steer a course between the reefs of, as it was at the time, the Soviet Union and the United States. So Indonesia wants to keep its ability to, to act freely. And it understands that part of that means working with China to grow its economy, as I was saying, without a thriving Indonesian economy helped by Chinese investment, the government won't have 
the economic ability to be autonomous in a sense. Uh, but on the other hand, Indonesia knows it needs to keep some distance uh, from China and from the US. So a, a great example of that is recently we saw a request uh, from the United States to refuel and temporarily base some of its P-8 maritime surveillance aircraft in Indonesia. And the Indonesians throughout this request, uh, really without any serious discussion, because they view that being too far uh, moving away from its non-aligned status. So there's there's a principle in how Indonesia acts. I'm not sure it's a strategy. We just turn briefly to uh, popular views of China in Indonesia. One of the striking things, I think, about, for example, the State of Southeast Asia survey that the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies has done is that while uh, China is seen as needed, it's not very well loved and certainly not very well trusted. Of course, in Indonesia, historically, we've seen periods of great tension between the Pribumi community and Indonesians of Chinese descent. How do you see relations between those two communities and how does popular opinion play into how Indonesian governments view China? It's a really good question, Richard, because Indonesia is the biggest democracy in Southeast Asia and the strongest one by far. So public opinion does matter. I mean, it matters in, in countries that aren't democratic, of course, but I think it matters much more in a democracy like Indonesia. And I think Jokowi's focus on using foreign policy as a tool to support economic development is really reflective of what Indonesians want to see, I think, from their, their foreign policy. They're not really interested in Indonesia playing a role in ASEAN, Indonesia playing a role in world affairs. They want to see the government using its international relations to support jobs for Indonesian workers. And I think on this point, we see an ambivalence in Indonesia, like a lot of countries in, in Southeast Asia. This is partly, I think, because of tensions with the ethnic Chinese community domestically, a history of a really racist attacks on the very small ethnic Chinese community, just something like 1% of Indonesia's 270 million people, so far smaller than, than Malaysia, which I know we're going to talk about later. But as I said, there is a history of, of real and live tensions. It was only a few years ago that Jokowi's great ally, the, his replacement as the governor of Jakarta, uh, known as Ahok, was ousted from office, uh, really by, by hardline Islamists and conservative Muslim groups, officially because he had blasphemed against Muslims and against Islam, but really uh, it was a racist campaign against someone who was an ethnic Chinese as well as a Christian. So I think that makes things difficult in Indonesia. We know at election time last year when there were presidential and parliamentary elections, there was a lot of dis and misinformation being spread on social media about tens of millions of Chinese workers uh, being brought into Indonesia by the government to, to take away Indonesian jobs. Not true at all. Indonesia actually has only something like 100,000 foreign workers in total, which is a tiny number. Chinese workers are actually the biggest proportion of that 110,000, and it has increased substantially, but nothing like the millions that you see on, on social media. And if you look at the re most recent survey data from Pew, which is a, a great and trusted uh, pollster on these matters, we see this Indonesian ambivalence. So something like 48% of Indonesians see Chinese investments as quote unquote, a bad thing. Uh, only 32% see them as a good thing. But at the same time, 40% of Indonesians think that China's strengthening economy is positive for Indonesia and only 36% uh, as negative. So people sort of broadly think that China rising is a good thing for Indonesia, but they don't necessarily want to see Chinese investment in their village or their town. And I think this has a lot to do with the perception that a lot of Chinese workers are being brought in, that, that Indonesians don't generally get uh, the most benefits. And I think that's partly 
um, a public relations issue really for for Chinese companies in how they engage. I think if we look at European companies, um, Japanese companies, US companies, Australian companies, they've put far more effort in the last 10, 20 years into their community engagement in places like Indonesia, into their media engagement. I think Chinese companies are a lot earlier um, in the process and they haven't quite got there, which is maybe part of the challenge. So according to Ben, Indonesia's China policy is mostly driven by economic concerns and lacks a coherent strategy. How does this compare to Malaysia? Former Prime Minister Najib Razak pursued a China-friendly policy, but he was voted out of office in an upset election in 2018 when the extent of the 1MDB scandal was brought to light. His successor, the nonagenarian Mahathir Mohamad, who already had been Prime Minister from 1981 to 2003, struck a much more critical note. Mahathir's government fell apart already in 2020. Back to Ben Bland and Richard Mott. How much does that Indonesian story that you've just set out apply in Malaysia? Is it more or less the same story, or do you see some significant differences in the relationship between Malaysia and China? Again, we have to look briefly at the domestic politics, which in Malaysia has been marked by great, great instability in the last two years. I was actually in Malaysia in 2018 when there was this incredible election result. Uh, the ruling Barisan National Coalition ousted for the first time since independence, partly because of revulsion at the corruption of the government of Najib Razak, and in part, you know, some of the, the investments that he'd been seeking uh, from Chinese companies to cover up uh, the corruption, the waste uh, from his 1MDB funds. So there was this great hope in Malaysia that uh, with Mahathir Mohamed back um, in power and a reformist, in theory, government, things would change. That government fell apart earlier this year and a kind of new form really of the Barisan National um, came back to power. So there's been great instability, but actually, in a way, less change than people would have thought because when Mahathir campaigned against sort of Najib's investments really um, during the election, he wasn't really targeting China so much as trying to put a focus on the corruption and waste and incompetence of the Najib government. There was this moment after he became prime minister when he went to Beijing and stood in the Great Hall of the People alongside Li Keqiang and warned about new forms of colonialism emerging. And I think some people in the West uh, took this as a sign that Malaysia was realigned more with the West and against China. But I think it was more about the domestic politics in, in Malaysia. And what we've seen really is a lot of continuity. Uh, that at the end of the day, Malaysia, it's a much wealthier country and a smaller country than Indonesia. But the government also needs investment from China, infrastructure from China to keep its economy ticking over. Um, so we've seen a, really a lot of pragmatism. Malaysia has a far more extensive series of territorial disputes um, with China. So there are actually features, you can't call them islands because they're submerged at various points of the day uh, but it has you know territorial features that are in dispute in china with the south china sea but we see malaysia often trying to play down uh, the nature of these disputes to cover up incidents whereas countries like vietnam and the philippines at different times have played a much more aggressive strategy of trying to bring in international law and international partners malaysia really like indonesia tries to play down these disputes and focus on the opportunities the only other point of difference we need to to understand is that the ethnic Chinese population in Malaysia is far bigger, something like 20% of the population, much bigger than Indonesia, which adds an extra complexity, which I think we're going to discuss a bit later. 
Let's talk about the Chinese community in Malaysia. As you say, it's a very important part of Malaysian society, but it's been unhappy for quite some time. At the receiving end of sort of Islo uh, nationalism from UMNO in particular. I'm just interested in your perspectives about whether you think Beijing pays much attention to that. And also from the other side of the fence, I remember when I was posted in the Australian High Commission in Malaysia, this is some time ago now, about 12 years ago, I went uh, to see my Chinese counterpart in the mission and we were talking about the Chinese government and the Malaysian government. And he gestured out his window and he, he said something to the effect of, I wish Special Branch would stop watching us. And sure enough, there was a car outside the Chinese uh, embassy, which uh, he said was there every day because of this fear within some parts of the Malaysian government, at least, that the Chinese government would interfere within Malaysia's Chinese community and cause trouble for Malaysia. Do you think those fears have eased or do those tensions still remain? There's still a certain degree of tension. One thing we have to acknowledge that's changed over time is the ethnic mix in, in Malaysia. So at independence in 1957, when Singapore uh, was, was still part of Malaysia as, as it was, the Chinese community was something like 38% of, of the population of Malaysia. And the Malays and indigenous uh, communities were still a minority, just at 49%. Well, that's now completely changed. So Malays and, and the Bumiputra, the, the indigenous peoples more broadly of, of Malaysia are now something like 62% of the population, the Chinese community, just 20%, partly due to population growth, partly due to a bit of a brain drain um, in the last uh, decade or so, because many people in the Chinese middle class in Malaysia feel they can't get a fair go because of the affirmative action policies that are in place to support or, or raise up the, the economic position of the Malay community. Um, they feel they're not getting a fair go, so they've been leaving for places like Australia, where they're one of the, the biggest uh, sources of incoming migrants and other countries too. So I think the, the demographic mix has changed, which in a way takes some of the heat out of the question. And I think Chinese uh, government attempts to, to intervene have been rather clumsy. Um, during the 2018 election, the Chinese ambassador did make a few kind of ham-fisted attempts to support the Barisan National Coalition, but I don't think they really did too many favours frankly. So, so I suspect th those concerns about interference were probably ease over time to some extent, but there's still a degree of unease. And I think it just speaks to the ambivalence of these relationships. But but by and large, you know, I think it's surprising how warm uh, the different colours of Malaysian government have been um, to, to their Chinese counterparts. I mean, we just saw uh, the Chinese foreign minister visiting Malaysia on, on a tour of the region and, and really, you know, spoke speaking alongside his Malaysian counterpart, a, a lot of warm words, um, yeah, I think the Chinese foreign minister, while well, there, saw fit to warn about this new emerging uh, American-led Asian NATO. He was talking about the Quad. It obviously isn't that. But the fact that he made that warning in Malaysia um, kind of speaks to his sense that maybe he thinks he's, he's speaking to those with a similar view. And Malaysia, a bit like Indonesia, has this kind of long-standing irritation with the United States. Uh, but it's complex, actually, because Malaysia, unlike Indonesia, does let the US uh, P8s uh, refuel um, and do surveillance um, over the South China Sea, as well as Australian uh, P8s as well, partly because of historical reasons and, and the five-power defense arrangement there. So, so it is a curious mix in these countries. Malaysia has its, its, own, its own flavor, but it's still, there still remains a degree of unease. And partly, I think, what will matter in the years to come is how 
how far the Chinese government tries to activate uh, the diaspora communities, which it really views as part of the, the broader Chinese population, which has to be rejuvenated uh, whether they want to be or not. You've touched on this already through various answers, but are there any other perspectives you wanted to add about how Indonesia and Malaysia view uh, the Belt and Road Initiative? If we understand the Belt and Road effectively to be an extension of China's broad going out policy to, to encourage more Chinese companies to invest overseas, uh, to build infrastructure, to acquire technology, etc., then I think for the most part, Malaysia and Indonesia are very receptive to it. Certainly their governments have been rhetorically. And again, it comes down to that pragmatism of wanting investment and deeper trade and infrastructure links with China. So Xi Jinping actually made one of the big early Belt and Road speeches in Indonesia, addressing the Indonesian parliament in 2013, back when the Belt and Road was the maritime, I think it was the maritime Silk Road, then it became One Belt, One Road, then the Belt and Road Initiative. But I think that was significant that he chose Indonesia to announce the maritime part of it, but it's very disjointed. What's probably the biggest Chinese investment project in, in Indonesia right now is probably the Jakarta to Bandung high-speed rail project, which has nothing to do with maritime at all and probably makes very little economic sense. So, so it's a pretty haphazard approach, but within that, the Malaysian and Indonesian governments, as well as many individual actors, uh, individual Indonesian state-owned companies or Malaysian private investors are trying to capitalize on you know, the real money, the real opportunities there to develop their economies and, and line their own pockets. As Ben has noted, the US are a crucial element of Southeast Asian power dynamics. How will the Biden administration change calculations? Here's again Ben one last time. And just a quick note, we recorded the conversation with Ben in late 2020 which is why you'll hear him talk about the upcoming inauguration of President Biden. When it comes to the U.S. election, I think it's it's, it's obviously been a momentous moment to, to get rid of Trump. I think there'll be a lot of relief in Southeast Asia to see things return to a more normal path initially, and hopefully to see more respect uh, uh, for the regional institutions around ASEAN, like the East Asia Forum and the like, which the Trump administration really neglected, hopefully to see more visits uh, from key US leaders to the region. I think that will be good. But there is a, a contradiction, if you like, here, or a tension. The Trump administration really didn't care about human rights and values. It was very kind of unilateral. And in a way, that gave a lot of space for Southeast Asian governments to get on uh, with the things they wanted to do domestically at a time when probably democracy has been backsliding, as a lot of people would argue, in the region. Biden's advisors have been talking about building an alliance of democracies, having a more traditional Democrat foreign policy framed around values and human rights. And frankly, that may not be welcomed in a lot of Southeast Asian countries. I mean, Indonesia and the Philippines, probably the only two real democracies, I would argue. And even they have a lot of issues at the moment with, with human rights. Uh, and they don't really want to see the US coming in and lecturing them again. So I think while there'll be... Uh, pleasure, at, there'll be delights, I would say, um, at kind of getting rid of Trump in that respect. Um, it's a case, perhaps, of be careful what you wish for. And a lot of it depends on how you know the Biden administration develops its foreign policy over the years to come. Whatever they think they want to do uh, before they're in power, things often change when, when reality has you know, a tendency to, to mug you um, as events change. And with that, let's move on to today's recommendation. Since this is our first podcast episode, I wanted to recommend one of my favorite podcasts out there, the Seneca podcast, 
which for more than 10 years has hosted weekly conversations on China, from politics to business to culture. I have been a loyal listener for years, and I learn something new with every episode they put out. Thank you very much for listening to today's show. In two weeks, we move on to mainland Southeast Asia, into the historic jungle and struggles of Cambodia and Laos. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And do leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. This episode of China and the World was produced and edited by Denise Stabli. Special thanks to Kaiser Kuo, Eric Olander, and our colleagues at Asia Society Australia. My name is Nico Luchsinger. See you soon. Follow Asia Society Switzerland on social media and visit our website for more information on upcoming events.